0: What you guys are very well known for is being quite discerning about what makes a good product, especially what makes a good SaaS product.
1: That really is what gets us super excited. Being able to see a product that fits a very specific need in the market, that even if it's built super roughly, it already exposes the needs that the founder has identified.
0: You're listening to This Much I Know, the Siege Camp podcast. Welcome, everyone. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Today, we have a very special guest, a friend, longtime friend, and also a seed camp alumni, Ricardo Sequeira Amram. Welcome, Ricardo. How are you doing? I'm
1: good. How are you, Carlos?
0: Good. Well, guys, if you don't know much about Ricardo, he's going to tell us his story today. He's partner at Point9 at the moment, and you know, he's got such big ambitions, I wouldn't doubt it if you know, at one point in the future, you're running the world, Ricardo. So I want to hear all the story. How did you get to where you are today? Um,
1: thanks for having me, Carlos. It's great that we're finally doing this. Um, I I guess just to quickly start with my background, I'm I'm Portuguese. I was born and raised in Lisbon. I I studied here um, in a French school, which gave me the ability to learn languages from early on, which I believe has been uh, really helpful throughout my life, not just career, also on the personal side of things. And, and uh, after sort of a stint studying economics in between Lisbon, Buenos Aires, and, and, and Barcelona, and having worked for a couple of years in traditional finance industry, I, I spent some years in private equity, investing in transport infrastructure investments across Europe, so car parks, roads, airports, and the likes. I was salvaged by uh, this small firm uh, that I just moved to their new swanky office in Shortage, uh, in Google Campus. And, and that company was, was Seatcamp, which was sort of like my entry point into the early stage startup scene in Europe, which at the time was much smaller than it is today. I think it's crazy to think that this was in 2010, 2011. So we're looking at almost 10 years ago that we worked really? together. Yeah, it's wow. crazy. It feels
0: like it feels like two years ago.
1: <laughs> it feels like yesterday, and and wow. and and yeah, I think back then you could get stabbed still in shortage, and there were not that many baristas, right? like, and uh, there were not that many co-working <laughs> spaces, and and it, and it was really a uh, eye-opening experience to be able to 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 see like the early days of companies like Transferwise and the likes, and the early days of Seedcamp, a small team. Uh, Still a small team, um, and 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 learn a lot about the earliest stages of company building and get all of that exposure to the ecosystem as it was developing itself. That was really sort of like an eye-opening experience. So I have a lot to thank you, Reshma, and Philip, and and the rest of the team for that experience. And from there, I I I kind of learned that I needed to be inside the startup to really understand how it works. And I. And when I meant startup, I, I really meant like early, early days, because that really was what, what, what I, what I was really interested in. Right? Like I, I think that that genesis of company building and, and that, that corpus of people that together can achieve much more than they would think individually they'd be able to achieve is, is really something that I was always very passionate about. Um, and I think continuing throughout my career to remain in the seed stage, um, And so I joined Cedars, the equity crowdfunding marketplace, as sort of one of the first business employees and and spent a couple of years there doing the whole work around going to market, getting the initial traction, getting to the early signs of product market fit, raising a larger Series A round, starting to scale. And that was really an awesome experience to learn and, and seeing sort of the early days of the sort of fintech ecosystem flourishing in London,
0: with our good friend uh, Jeff lynn
1: exactly, and Carlos Silva, and 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 after that, I I I I wanted to get more exposure to to software and to software as a service, and 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 from there, I I, I moved to Faber, which is a sort of like early stage fund, but also a startup studio, where a lot of the products were built in house and and launched, and there I was. Spending a lot of my time on on go to market and figuring out those early signs of product market fit, and admittedly, I was not the most uh, qualified to do that job. But but I I tried to learn as much as possible, reading a lot of Christoph's
0: blogs, uh, learning a lot from a distance Ardo, from him. I think you're, you're too humble, man. I don't think any of us are really qualified to do this job. I think it's it's a constant job of humility, man. But yeah, Christoph. Yeah, is, Christoph is a source of authority, though. I mean, he's like the one. Outlier, exactly. We he, all learned from him a was, lot. He was born with high midi That guy. <laughs> 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 so
1: I spent some years there, and curiously enough, um, the first time I had a touch point with Point Nine was there because they invested in a, a company that we had built at the studio called Nom Nom, and 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 that was also the first time I saw the impact that an investor could have on a company, not only at board level but on a day to day business, and 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 that's where I. I sort of decided to move from sort of being addicted to growth and to acquisition and that go-to-market part of early-stage businesses to wanting to really be there on the support side of entrepreneurs throughout their journeys, not just maybe the idea of launching products, validating them, and then moving on to the next one, but really being part of a journey of an entrepreneur from the earliest stages up to... Hopefully, one day seeing, seeing them either ring a bell at a stock market or being acquired, and 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 getting to a point of of of, of really like the epitome of success that that, that we see in, in 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 our industry, um and and that's what led me to move from London after six years or or so in, in in the city which is a city that I love and that I visit ongoingly as you know I camp a lot at the seed camp office whenever I'm there. And 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 joined uh, Ven- Cherry Ventures, which is a, a VC firm, seed stage, based out of out of Berlin. Um, and there, I spent a lot of time thinking about software and thinking about marketplaces and investing in in these businesses. And and after a couple of years, I mean, and also a, a couple of co-investments with the Point9 team, and and uh, we 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 I ended up joining the firm, and 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 ultimately saw a lot of sort of shared thoughts around how to continue supporting entrepreneurs and the types of companies and, and insights that, that we sort of wanted to put out there and invest in and, 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 and ultimately saw an awesome fit for, for me to join the firm and dedicate the next decades to continue doing what, what, what my partners at Point9 have been doing for the past 12 years. So this is how I got to, to Berlin and, and, and ultimately to Point9.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, it's 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 a great story, Ricardo. And and as I said when I kicked off, it's like it showcase it's very rare that people can not only have that many experiences, but also being able to basically find the right people in the ecosystem to sort of go after and and work with. So, you know, I applaud I applaud that. You know, it's like that that level of of vision and and sort of execution on that. And you know, the good thing is that it's also giving you quite a a a broad level of, of exposure to different ways of doing things, you know, like, you know, we're, we've been in this business long enough now that, you know, that people have different styles and, and those styles can manifest themselves in, in the board level. It can manifest themselves in how you interact with, with peers and, and with founders and everything. And, and that's, it's super great. And I want to jump into what those lessons are, but first let's talk a little bit about what you're interested in now. And I know that, you know, you focus, you call yourself a B2B investor. Um, and obviously that means that you are some things for some people and you're definitely not the right person to talk to for others, but walk us through why, why, after you've been exposed to all the different variants, whether, you know, at Cedars, you saw some D2C you know, fundraising campaigns, you know, at Faber and, and Cherry, you saw things like um, products like Nom Nom. And it's like, where why now... Focus just on one specific area? Is it your choice? Is it the fun? Tell us why.
1: Yeah, I think after a couple of sort of initial years working with a variety of different companies and models, whether they were marketplaces on the B2C side, software or marketplaces on the B2B side, rather more consumer-oriented mobile businesses, uh, I think I'd, I found my, my sweet spot in B two B and B two B is a very wide ranging spectrum of businesses. They can be software, they can be marketplaces, they can be many other things. Right? Like and 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 ultimately, understanding what technology can do for um, for for the world and 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 what it can do for industries. I just felt very compelled by the opportunities of bringing technology whether it's networks or software or anything in between um, to the b2b spectrum the idea of automating industries and markets through software and internet products was something that was super compelling to me and thinking that looking at the way i interface with technology as someone that you can consider to be an early adopter of technology and then seeing how industries worked and how effectively they were 10, 20 years behind the way I worked at SeedCamp or at Faber, but also the way I interfaced with technology from a consumer standpoint. I just saw that there was a huge opportunity to bring industries, right, like traditional industries, to bring outdated, antiquated industries to the 21st century by offering them technology that makes them work much more efficiently. And this is really where I think my passion lies, right? Like maybe I have colleagues in my team that are much better at looking at, you know, opportunities that are maybe very horizontal, next-generation design tools, next-generation product tools, next-generation tools for developers. I just find myself really passionate about the idea of helping that old traditional industry, that SMB or enterprise company that is stuck in the on-prem worlds or not even, right, like upskill themselves through technology. And whether it's, we can talk about industries further down the line, but whether it's restaurants, florists, veterinarian clinics, construction companies, factories, and the likes, it just feels like Today, adoption is effectively happening at a super accelerated pace across all of these industries that are still super underserved. Um, and that's and why talking, I think right?
0: they're talking to each other in very clunky, old school ways. Paper, yeah. in many cases, super slow sales cycles. Um, and what, one chat that we were having before, you know, you were talking about how you particularly love vertical SaaS software deals that can mm-hmm. become marketplaces and and to some extent it sounds like it's an extension of what you're just chatting right now maybe you can tell us more about that
1: yeah so i think that you know like the proliferation of software has been happening for decades and decades and as behemoths on the horizontal software side of things are really gaining significant market share we also see opportunity to penetrate markets by building really these industry-specific software solutions and where you decrease the scope of the products that are being built and you increase the depth of the product that is being built. And if you think, for example, about Salesforce and their market share at about 20% and to a certain extent, growth rates not accelerating, but rather to a certain extent, decreasing. And then we see opportunities like Viva, right? Like in the, again, in the CRM space with much more than 50% market share in the like, like the, the pharma industry. We do see that there's like really interesting opportunity to build industry specific software solutions that really adapt to the core workflows, processes that an industry requires and that are effectively built for purpose for such industries. And I think in the public markets, I mentioned Viva, but I think Procore is a great example. MindBody is a great example. All very different businesses, but great examples. And then I think in, in the point nine portfolio, like, I think my colleague Christoph, one of his first co-investments. I think it's actually the first co-investment with his partner Pavel is a company called Clio, which is a practice management software for law firms in Canada. Um, that really was sort of like one of the very first vertical SaaS solutions that we invested in. Since then, like the, the list has only increased with companies like Vent in the POS space in New Zealand, like Mambu in the cloud native backend for financial institution space. Um, and then we've done a lot of things in health, in the hotel, hospitality space, in the renewable energy space, with dentists, with veterinarian clinics, and the like. so um, and restaurants. and so uh, we 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 just see that like this opportunity has been developing itself significantly. and um, in many cases, there were heuristics in the past that would claim that the opportunities or the Tams uh, related to these businesses were just too small. and they were not attractive investments. And we've come to validate over the years that this heuristic is just incorrect. Uh, and, and, and it it's probably become more like it's probably become more incorrect over time as we saw that these vertical SaaS businesses that were, you know, were going to market with a SaaS go to market, charging um, probably SaaS revenue to, to, to their customers expand their 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 acv over time with a multitude of opportunities and to each their own right like to to each of these types of businesses their own expansion opportunity but what we see is that for example the opportunities brought by you know fintech and and the ability to integrate fintech into existing products right like has Significantly increased the the total addressable market of these products. And if you think about payments, just plugging in a simple Stripe API enables really with significant ease, right? Like for businesses to suddenly uh, provide an amazing expansion of of their product to their customers. And with payments is just sort of like the first low hanging fruit in fintech. You can add. Insurance, you can layer in credits and financing solutions, you can add compliance as a service, banking solutions, and the list goes on and on and on.
0: But that's just well, I mean with one all side. The, with all these choices and all, all these um, broad sectors that, that are still to be disrupted, there must be some way that you curate the opportunities. And 0.9 point nine is very well known for the SaaS napkin. And, you know, it's, it's a very good guide. If you don't know what the SaaS napkin is, you can just Google it. Christoph Jan's SaaS napkin. And, you know, you guys put, as a firm, you guys put on, on the internet basically a way that people can, can get a sense of, you know, how they're doing relative to the stage that they're in. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I'm curious, you know, I, I, I was chatting with Christoph uh, earlier in this year, Especially right after COVID hit, and we were talking about how 2020 will affect those numbers, mm-hmm. and whether that means that the contract values will go up and go or go down, and 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 how any one investor might look at those. and And I think at the time he was reluctant to say anything because. To be frank, I don't think anybody knew what, what the hell was going on, but now we look at the way that the stock market has taken off and tech companies in particular have been better off because they're more resilient to some of the challenges of, of navigating during the, the times of COVID um, because software is software. and I'm curious now, like, what is impressive in a company? What is, from a metrics point of view, something that would get your attention um, at the point nine? Like, Is it you know early traction or is it the prospect of a certain annual contract value size what what is what are the what are the fundamentals there that really sort of catch your attention
1: yes um, good point i think that you know we're called 0.9 for a reason and 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 i don't think a lot of people know but uh, uh, but the reason why we're called 0.9 is we like to invest in products before the 1.0 version and in businesses before they launch the 1.0 version. So we're more than used to investing in businesses that don't have all the ingredients for us to formalize what the business will look like in, 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 in five, 10 years, but enough that we can build hypotheses, and enough that we can effectively, um, build a thesis around if the business achieves X, Y, and Z, uh, then this looks like a really awesome opportunity, and you know, like we invest uh, from pre-revenue to to already with a decent chunk of revenue. Our our investment check size today ranges from 500k to 3 million, which enables us to cover a pretty wide range of what seed has become these days. And and you know, like for for some businesses, having a, a clear understanding of of how you know expansion of contract value will Will look like um, is is maybe enough for others wanting to see uh, some uh, handful of customers or some some traction in the market um, is is also something that gets us excited. I think there's no one size fits all for .9. I think it also depends a lot on the opportunity, the business, the industry you're going after, um, because the adoption and the way we think about the go-to-market uh, and the way we sort of Work alongside the founders. The moment we invest is 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 in a very collaborative way, a work of discovery and a work of like embarking on a journey to get to product market fit. So I think that like you know in there, a good example is a company that that we recently invested in called Pets App, where you know they're what they're effectively building is a, a software solution for veterinarian clinics and. And there we saw that there's clearly an opportunity to monetize based on software, but ultimately down the line, a lot of these FinTech opportunities could be achieved. But then again, right? Like there was more expansion of that ACV through potentially a a B2C marketplace or capturing more of of the B2C expenditure in pet care, which is just certainly enormous. and and ultimately, that gave us the conviction, despite not seeing any traction there, but just understanding what the business could become if they achieve these adjacent revenue opportunities, for us to get super excited and and want to work with the team. Um, I think that ultimately, that's how we think about like understanding what these adjacencies of the initial uh, you know product and 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 revenue model that the business is running at the point at which we invest that that then ultimately enable us to build the thesis and work alongside founders to validate those additional revenue streams.
0: If I take that example, if I take the example of PetSap, um and and others like it uh, and I and I create a you know like you can you can subdivide things across a spectrum across multiple infinite ways but I'm going to take three independent points in a in a in a sort of spectrum. And I'm going to give you the, three, the, the two bookends and the polar one. And I'm going to ask you, which one do you think tends to do better of that spectrum? And which one do you think 0.9 seems to favor? So, you know, on the one hand, um, in, in the, in, there's a, a post your colleague, Christoph wrote about elephants versus flies. Mm-hmm. Elephant contract sizes, huge contract sizes, large ACVs, maybe very slow sales cycle. And then flies. It's like tons of customers, maybe paying a dollar each. You have, if, if you know, you can make a million. You can make a million both ways, right? You can have one million dollar contract, or you can have a million people paying a dollar. They're both worth a million, right? Mm. And then there's this new type of company, and I would put maybe app in this category. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm going to explain why I think it fits into this category. It's because it's 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 like a sandwich. It's got multiple layers of revenue, right? It's not only just the, the original subscription software, but then there's an additional element that's added here, an additional element that's added here. And so you have these layers of revenue, which compounded means that there is a larger ACV for maybe a particular practice or veterinary practice rather than just the software license alone. And so in that spectrum... Which one do you think historically tends to do better? And then which one do you think you guys tend to prefer? Like this sort of, and it's, it's constantly shifting, but it's, you know, you look at some of the software that's like low license fees, but many users mm-hmm. versus large ones like UiPath with like these larger, I'm just trying to get a sense for where do you think that, that spectrum sits in terms of definition?
1: I think it's difficult to generalize because you like whether we're talking about vertical saas or whether we're talking about horizontal saas like that there's there's differences in the way you you build that strategy and potentially you build that layer right like I think heuristic like again bringing heuristics into the discussion right like traditionally you want to run fast and your product doesn't serve the enterprise and you start with smbs and over time you build up the product and the go-to-market motion to be able to attract higher ACV-type deals. Um, I think that, like, in the case of vertical software, it, again, depends as to whether you're going to be doing SaaS expansion and you're going to be bringing more and more of the software suite used by that specific customer into your own product, and you're going to basically um, compete against whatever the payroll, the CRM, whatever are the other pieces of software that that particular business is using and you're going to basically incorporate them all into your product and capture more and more of ACV expansion. But if you're doing fintech, that's a different type of revenue stream. It's not a SaaS revenue stream. It becomes then um, much more of a financial revenue type opportunity. If you're then layering in a marketplace, uh, a network type opportunity, which is the case with many of our B2B marketplaces that start with a SaaS and then ultimately layer uh, an opportunity to build a network and become even more sort of, sticky and retained and become really core process part of a procurement process inside um, inside such a business um, then that's a whole different type of revenue stream more related to gmv and transaction take rate right like so it's difficult to give you exactly a sense and then what is it that point nine prefers i mean we've invest in businesses from flies to elephant hunters right like and and i think that's something that throughout the years, I think we we it's not that we favored one versus another. We've continuously get excited about working with businesses of all types of go to markets, chasing different types of what Christoph calls the animals. Um so I think that like it's us
0: understanding
1: it's, how the offer
0: puts a new spin on what's your spirit animal right
1: <laughs> yeah we need to 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 get something new out uh, from a content point of view around around our spirit animals <laughs> but, on, but on I, that- again right like i work with i work with companies targeting uh, small acvs i work with companies targeting like large acvs in the enterprise space i think these are different go to markets of course um, but we remain generally ap- attracted to working with with all these types of entrepreneurs.
0: You know. In this last, in this last answer you gave me, um, you started off by talking about how a company can can expand, right, from like mm-hmm. an, an early part to multiple other things, and and sometimes in that expansion, there's a a, a change in the go to market, right? Like the, it goes from like a a SaaS subscription to now a different form of partnership or a different type of sale, um, in order to be able to to sort For of sure. expand that, and the key thing that makes this happen is the team, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you have a team that cannot transform and expand that. Um, you basically stunted with the f- original version that you got pitched. You didn't expand beyond that original vision. It just kind of got stuck there because the team. Mm-hmm. So how do you guys, especially with, with a lot of these businesses that are getting bigger and bigger in terms of their vision and scope of being able to software eat the world, so to speak, how do you guys think about a team as good or bad or as appropriate for that kind of evolution in the company.
1: Yeah. And I think an interesting insight, right? Like in terms of founder DNA that we look for, be it in vertical SaaS and in B2B marketplaces, right? Like which are industry specific businesses, right? Like is that we look for founders that have significant domain expertise that have spent years in the industry before effectively uh, deciding to jump ship and fix the problems that they were exposed to for so many years through technology, right? And I think that having these types of founders building such businesses really enables them to very instinctively understand the buyer of the product that they're building and very instinctively conduct a sale, right? and, 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 And these founders, you know, like, Ultimately, at the beginning, it's them doing all sales and gradually, over the period at which we invest, we work with these founders to help them onboard the first AEs and transpose the superpowers that founders have at selling their own products to other people. That's a huge win, typically, when the first AEs get to quota and we can say that like it's not just you that can sell your product, but it's also the sales team. but then over time, and especially if ACVs start growing and you've built a go-to-market team that is targeting ACVs of in the tens of thousands, and then you need to target in the hundreds of thousands or in the millions, you need to bring DNA that is then catering the enterprise sales cycle and the enterprise go-to-market. And, and this is something that may happen much further down the line, right? Like post A, post B, depending on the depth of the SMB market for that specific segment. But it's really important to then upskill the dna of your go to market team and bring enterprise talent because it just becomes very different type of go to market at that point
0: yeah in terms of uh, go to market part of it obviously comes down to the product being fit for purpose and what you guys are very well known for is you know being quite discerning about what makes a good product especially what makes a good saas product is there any, I know that you hate generalizations and in some ways, it's very hard to have a conversation without picking either on a specific company, but if you had to make generalizations about when you get the feeling that, wow, this is an amazing product, even at the point nine stage in the earlier than 1.0 stage, what is it about that product?
1: Yeah, I mean, that really is what gets us super excited, right, like being able to see, um, a product that really fits a very specific need in the market that even if it's built super roughly, it already exposes the needs um, that the founder has identified. And I think that like a magical moment throughout our due diligence is when we're going through the product with the founder and he is explaining us why he built such feature first and why exactly is it that this particular part of the product is important as for the prototype and why he didn't build the other feature and why he didn't build the other feature. And that's where the clarity of thought and the insight that was generated throughout years of industry experience comes out, right? Like, because they could have, there's so much to build, right? Like there's really so much to build. And typically, if you think about it, these founders are Founders that come from industry, it's not like they are product manager genius. They have product expertise at building technical problems, but they do have that insight. They do that have that clarity of thought of the problem is X. And these three particular features are really essential for me to start developing the business and selling to the target customers that I need to go after. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's where our eyes typically shine and, and, and then. If on top of that, there's some magical usage that corroborates the clarity of thought expressed by the founder. And it doesn't need to be 100 businesses using it. It's just a couple. And and that already sort of enables us to, yet again, build that product market fit experiment that we are keen to back over the next 18 months and run alongside the founders as an extended part of their team to get them to product market fit which is really our ultimate value proposition to the businesses and founders that we decide to partner with for the next years. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a a good answer. Um, It gives me good visibility on kind of what you guys are looking for. But actually, it does another thing as well, Ricardo. Mm -hmm. Tell me. If I were a founder and listening to this, you know, what I sense every time I speak to you, it's like there's this passion that you have towards this, not only this industry, but this sort of relationship with founders, it's um, it's truly, truly like visible and, and palpable. So, you know, it's it's like if I had to raise money, you know. You'd raise with us? Of, of course, <laughs> you, know, I would, you know, I'm conflicted here because, of, <laughs> but, you know, you know what I mean, Ricardo, you would be up there on the list for me. And, you know, we always like to end with a question to give you know, maybe a non-VC related question, but, you know, just the insight into kind of what you're thinking is outside of work, whatever. Yeah. um, It's a question a little bit maybe reflective and philosophical about what's going on in the world today. And um, if you look back, you know, in history, a lot of bad things happened. And we look back today to them and think, oh, my God, how did we let that happen? If we look 50 years into the future and um, and we look back today, not 2020 specifically, but just, you know, today's era in the future, what will we be looking back at and thinking, how the hell did we let that happen?
1: Interesting one. Um, I think that like, the biggest problem that we have in the world of today is our addiction to technology. Right? Like, we've unleashed and opened up the gates and ultimately have, to a certain extent, got to a point where you know, the way we're addicted to our phones, the way we're basically finishing up our dinner and clicking Netflix and opening up Netflix and spending our time binging content, um, technology allows so much and but at the same time we forgot to put the brakes on the products that we've built uh we forgot that you know the moment your dopamine kicks only come out of the rich media that comes out of your phone reading a book is no longer something that satisfies your 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 brain right like um that's a problem right like and 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 i think about it a lot as i see friends and 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 family starting to have kids that are starting to interface with technology. I mean, I, I think as someone born in 89, I probably was one of the last generations to have lived my childhood in an analog world, right? Like I had my first smartphone at age 20 or so. I I I I I I I really didn't have Wi-Fi at school, right? Like I had to go to a library and Google on a PC. Pentium 3 <laughs> type of situation. And I think kids today are exposed to technology from day one and they want to be YouTubers and they spend their time looking at yeah, YouTube and other media channels. And, and I think that it's fine. I think the technology brings awesome opportunities of learning, of democratization, of access, of uh, ultimately the ability to learn on their own and become much more than the surroundings that they are exposed to but we forgot to we it feels that we forgot to add the brakes right like and we forgot to add some some gates and i think one of the important things that we'll look at is just like 50 years from now we'll look at the way i hope we i actually hope we look at the way we've been consuming our phones rather than looking at the people in front of us or um just giving an ipad to a kid so he shuts up for a while those are the easy fixes right like and 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 ultimately in 50 years i hope that that we fix this problem whilst still keeping the beauty of what software and the internet have given to the world so i think our role as investors in this case is really to be able to build and and finance finance the 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 the, the businesses that are bringing these additional layers that the internet and and doesn't have today right like yeah. and and i think that this is this is a huge challenge for the world of the future, because then we we might all become <laughs> uh, very easily distracted uh, by 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 the, by the technology and the digital world that we have, and we forget the beautiful world that we have outside of our screens.
0: Yeah, no, there's definitely a major transformation that needs to happen. So I saw the news today that uh, one one local u um, uh, k town is taking a commercial mall. And because a lot of the malls have now sort of imploded because, you know, of internet shopping, that they're now going to turn it into a green space. So I, I see it's it's funny for, for as much as like, I look at some dystopian tendencies of our society. I also see some trends that people are like, especially COVID, I think has been a wake up call for people, you know, like nature matters, you know, being outside yes. matters, being close to family matters. So I think you're onto something, Ricardo. I think we should, I think we should back a deal <laughs> Together that really hope so. all that. And really, that, hope so. really enjoyed having you and chatting with you, Ricardo. Always a pleasure. I can't believe it's been what 10 years. That's insane.
1: And it's been a while since I visited you in London. I look forward to that day. Uh I look forward to, to the days where we can all see each other uh face to face. Soon. 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 Thank, Thank you nice for having see you guys.
0: me. See you later. Bye.
1: Thank you. Bye, Carlos.